The Pentagon says it'll speed up its delivery of weapons to Ukraine with tanks now scheduled to arrive by this fall instead of a couple years from now. It's Wednesday, March 22nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the Federal Reserve will decide today whether to hike interest rates. Banks hope they won't, but that could have unintended consequences. If the Federal Reserve decided not to raise rates, it does raise that question of, uh-oh, are things much worse than we perceive? Also, the congressional debate over what's called Section 702. The Justice Department says it's a key tool in gathering foreign intelligence. A enormously large percentage of the threats information that we're receiving comes from 702 collection. And this hour, the struggle to recruit teachers in states like Mississippi. In sports, the Celtics and Bruins win, partly sunny in the 50s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The U.S. Federal Reserve will issue a critical decision on interest rates today. As NPR's David Gura reports, the Federal Reserve is evaluating the effect of recent bank failures on the U.S. economy. The Federal Reserve faces a dilemma. Does it keep hiking interest rates to fight high inflation, or does the Fed hit pause because of the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and all that's happened since? Inflation has eased some, but prices are still rising way faster than the Fed wants, and policymakers have said getting inflation under control is their first priority. Wall Street has been on edge, although there are signs the banking system is stabilizing. On Tuesday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen opened the door to more government intervention if there were to be another bank run, and shares of U.S. regional lenders rose again. First Republic Bank regained some of the ground it's lost. The California-based lender closed up almost 30 percent. David Gura, NPR News, New York. A drug-resistant fungal infection has increased dramatically in U.S. medical facilities, and it's become even harder to treat. NPR's Rob Stein explains that's according to new research from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The CDC says the number of patients in hospitals and nursing homes infected with a fungus known as Candida auris almost doubled to 1,471 cases in 2021. At the same time, the proportion of cases caused by strains that are no longer treatable with the last available class of medication tripled. The CDC says the surge may have occurred in part because of the strain the pandemic put on the healthcare system caused a deterioration of infection control measures. The fungus occurs primarily in nursing home patients and those who are so sick they're on ventilators. Rob Stein, NPR News. President Vladimir Putin says Russia would be forced to react to Britain's decision to send armor-piercing rounds of ammunition to Ukraine. Bill Mark says these are manufactured with depleted uranium. The UK's defense ministry insisted depleted uranium has been a standard component in the rounds used by Challenger 2 tanks of the kind recently sent to Ukraine. President Putin's warning about a, quote, nuclear component in the weapons was, Britain said, the Russian leader deliberately trying to disinform. UK authorities say the rounds have a low risk of radiation. Villa Marks reporting. Japan has defeated the U.S. in the World Baseball Classic 3-2. Japan's Shohei Otani led his team to victory over the United States and Captain Mike Trout. Both Otani and Trout are with the Los Angeles Angels. Japan's victory comes as cherry blossoms bloom in Tokyo and in Washington, D.C. The scores of cherry trees now blossoming in Washington were presented as a gift in 1912 from the people of Tokyo to the United States. This is NPR.
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The school superintendent in Everett and one of her deputies are suing the city in federal court. Superintendent Priya Tahiliani claims the two faced discrimination on the basis of their race and gender. Their suit alleges Mayor Carlo Di Maria criticized efforts to recruit non-white staff to oversee a district that serves 86 percent students of color. Tahiliani alleges the mayor made demeaning racist and sexist remarks and retaliated after she complained. Everett parent Damian Allen says he's sad but not surprised by the way he believes white city leaders talk about one of the state's most diverse cities. And everyone in my house, my wife, my children, we are all people of color. They were talking about us. That's devastating. There is some significant rot at the core of our city government. Mayor DiMaria denies the allegations. The suit comes two weeks after the school committee declined to renew Tahiliani's contract. A group of advocates for renters is calling on the state to extend an eviction prevention law put in place during the pandemic. Kelly Turley is associate director for the Massachusetts Coalition for the Homeless. She says currently if a tenant is in court facing eviction but has filed a rental assistance application, the judge will hold off on the eviction until the application is decided. It's a win-win if we're able to buy um, some extra time for that application to be processed so that tenants can stay in place and preserve their housing stability and the property owners can um, get the back money that they're owed. The law is scheduled to expire next week. A Boston man who spent 16 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit finally had his conviction tossed. Prosecutors at the time said Barry Kamara was responsible for killing a teenager in Dorchester in 1992. The Boston Globe reports that prosecutors now say evidence was withheld in his case and some witness testimony was influenced. Kamara is black. Since 2019, judges in the state have thrown out over a dozen cases wrongfully implicating men of color. Mass General Brigham is giving some of its patients who experience food insecurity free cooking lessons. The hospital network will launch a teaching kitchen today at its food pantry in Revere. Patients will receive plant-based ingredients and learn how to use them to prepare nutritious meals at home. Jacob Mirsky is the clinical director at MGH Revere. He wants to ensure patients have free access to healthy ingredients. In the same way that I would never tell a patient how important it is to take a cholesterol medicine and then not prescribe it, it's similarly unethical, I think, to tell patients that they should eat healthier, that they would benefit from healthier foods, and then not be able to provide them. The program will expand to free online classes later this spring. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Analytics at Boston College, a degree that helps students translate data insights into dynamic business models. bc.edu slash analytics. The Celtics beat the Kings 132-109 to last night in Sacramento. The season game is Friday at home against the Pacers. The Bruins topped the Ottawa Senators 2-1 to last night at the Garden. The Bees will host the Montreal Canadiens tomorrow. Partly sunny today with a high in the 50s, cooler right at the coast, increasing clouds overnight with a chance for a shower. Temperatures will only drop into the 40s. Cloudy with showers likely tomorrow. It'll be in the upper 50s. Right now it's 43 degrees in Boston at 707. WBUR supporters include the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org.
On a Wednesday, it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. This afternoon, the Federal Reserve will announce whether it will continue to raise interest rates. The Fed has been trying to get inflation under control without wrecking the economy. And now there's the turmoil in the U.S. banking sector, and raising interest rates could cause more instability. So what does the Fed do? To discuss that, we have Peter Conti-Brown. He's a financial historian and legal scholar who teaches at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. And he joins us this morning from Ambler, Pennsylvania. Good morning, Peter, and thanks for being on the program. Good morning. Glad to be here. So what should the Fed do? Should they raise interest rates to cool inflation or pause to help banks facing instability? The Fed faces two bad options. Mm. Three weeks ago, uh, they were signaling that they were eager to gallop toward uh, breaking inflation's back with a 50 basis point hike. And then a week and a half ago, we have a banking crisis that the Fed's actions may have exacerbated. And so now we have to understand how the two sides of the Fed's house, the crisis fighters and the inflation fighters, are going to talk to each other if they talk to each other at all. Well, first, what did the Fed do to contribute to that banking crisis? And then let's get into those two sides. It was a profound failure of regulation and supervision. Banks exist in a kind of public-private partnership managing risk in the financial system. Uh, The public side of that is the bank supervisors. They work for the Fed, among other agencies, but for Silicon Valley Bank, this was all the Federal Reserve. And the Fed spotted these very poor risk mismanagement practices and did not stop them. And so that's the first big problem. The second is they rushed to declare that this was a financial crisis like 2008, like in 2020, Mm. by invoking their emergency authorities, telling the markets, telling everyone simultaneously Hey, the crisis fighters, uh, they're here, but also this is, in fact, a financial crisis. This is related to the Fed's interest rate policy because this bank's, uh, the risks they mismanaged were, in fact, that we are in a, an aggressive rate-hiking cycle, a cycle that the Federal Reserve on the monetary policy side has been pushing. What do you think of the Fed's approach to inflation so far? Has it been too aggressive? The problem is that monetary policy acts on a lag Inflation is a very serious problem. There's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. Monetary policy is one uh, of the policy responses. But the problem is that we've been moving so fast so far uh, that some banks uh, haven't been able to keep up. Uh, And so I think it's appropriate that the Fed has been raising interest rates. They've been trying to telegraph their intent uh, uh, loud and proud about how, how far they're willing to go to break inflation. What they didn't do is monitor well how that interest rate policy is destabilizing uh, some of the least well-managed banks. Mm. Now, you talked about how the feds are facing two bad options, but they are facing that decision today. If you were advising the Fed today, what would you tell them to do? As a Fed historian, I would say uh, if you look back at federal open market committee decisions in periods of financial distress, it's almost always been a pause or a cut. I'm not saying the Fed should cut its interest rates. We also rarely see the case where we have uh, acute financial distress while we have growing inflation. But I would recommend a pause. It's not great. Uh, The Fed wants to maintain its credibility as an inflation fighter uh, and whipsawing between 50 basis point hikes and a pause uh, doesn't do a lot to bolster that credibility. 
At the same time, we are in the midst of not knowing how bad this financial crisis could become. And every time you raise interest rates, you're creating more stress on poorly managed banks uh, and, uh, and, and tipping us perhaps into uh, something that could truly be a systemic crisis. Now, you used the term crisis several times in this conversation. That's how you would um, describe this moment as a financial crisis? I would call it a banking crisis uh, almost as a, as a legal term. When the Federal Reserve and the Treasury uh, uh, invoked their, their authorities, they had to declare that it is a crisis. It's the only way they could do the big guarantees and the big provisions of liquidity that they have done. So in that sense, I'm just following the Fed's lead. Peter Conti-Brown of the Wharton School, thank you so much for your time. I was glad to be here. Thank you. As many news organizations have reported in great detail, Donald Trump says he will be arrested on Tuesday. It's Wednesday, Steve. Uh, that's exactly right, Layla. It's, it's Wednesday. Uh, Donald Trump hasn't been arrested. Oh, yes. That's because <laughs> his widely reported prediction of an arrest on Tuesday turns out to be untrue. That said, nobody can rule out the possibility that the former president will be indicted sometime, somewhere, because there are multiple investigations. New York prosecutors are examining a hush money payment to an adult film star. The federal Justice Department has questioned his handling of classified documents. And Georgia prosecutors have examined his effort to overturn his election defeat in 2020. So what does all this mean for Trump's 2024 presidential campaign, which is already underway? We turn now to Columbia Law School professor Richard Brifault. Good morning, sir. Good morning. And glad to hear from you. Republicans, of course, have criticized all these investigations as political, a way to interfere with his presidential campaign. So let's examine the law first. Could a prosecution prevent Trump from continuing his presidential campaign? Um, not legally. I mean, that is uh, the fact that he, that the president, former president might be indicted. That's not a bar to running for president. It might make it logistically more difficult for, a can for somebody to run for president, but it wouldn't create a legal obstacle. Oh, that's an interesting word, logistical. Why would it be logistically more difficult for an indicted person to continue or make a presidential campaign? Well, once a trial begins, presumably he may want to attend. He may be called as a witness. He may be examined. Um, he may just the, the 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 process of running a trial itself, or would could conceivably interfere with his ability to run around the country. Oh, interesting. Not, again, he might not be constrained physically, but. But, you know, just the, the, the process of having to deal with the case. No, we're, we're not presuming that the former president would end up in jail prior to a trial, but we're presuming that he would be distracted, that he could be very busy. That's what you're saying. Exactly. What exactly, authority, yes. if any, does Congress have to keep someone from running for office if they were to feel that it was bad for the country? Not really much. I mean, the Constitution sets the criteria for eligibility for president, and he meets them. Uh, he's in a, he's over 35. He's been a resident for a long enough period of time and he's a citizen. Um, so there, that's really about it. It's actually would be improper for Congress to add uh, criteria. There is a provision in the 14th Amendment for people who are involved in an insurrection against the country. They lose the ability to hold office. Uh, Congress could conclude that. Uh, but short of that, um, they, would, they really can't add new requirements. Yeah, and I guess we should mention that late last year when Democrats still controlled both houses of Congress, some House Democrats introduced legislation essentially to declare that Trump 
couldn't run because of the 14th Amendment or declared that, 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 he, that he could not have another campaign, but that did not, did not pass. I'd like to know what the implications are of any of these indictments, should they ever come to pass. We have not had a president prosecuted in this way before. We've not had a former president put on trial, not even Richard Nixon after he resigned. He was pardoned for various crimes. Would this in some way change our system if there was a former president and presidential candidate on trial? It would really be up to the public. It would, it would really, it continues to be a matter of how much would uh, potential voters, both initially within a Republican primary and then should he be nominated in a general election, how much would it matter for them? Again, you know, indictment doesn't mean conviction. Um, so the people have been indicted for charges and have, and have been acquitted. So it's not clear that indictment necessarily means anything. But ultimately, but, 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 but it would be up to the voters in some to way make the decision. But would it in some way politicize our system beyond whatever it is now? Well, that's the concern. I mean, you've got the dueling concerns here. One is the possibility of a political prosecution. Uh, and that's certainly what's being charged by the former president's defenders. On the other hand, there's the basic proposition that nobody's above the law. Uh, and that if somebody commits a crime, uh, they should be charged for it, no matter how important they are, how high a position they've held. Um, no one, there wouldn't be any question about this if this, say, was a homicide case. Yeah. Um, Richard, Bre I got to stop you there. I, re I regret that I have to stop you there. But Richard Brefault of Columbia Law School, thanks so much. Pleasure talking with you. The chief executive of TikTok is expected to tell lawmakers in Washington tomorrow that the Chinese-owned company has put guardrails around the personal data belonging to American users. The prepared testimony from Shozi Chu will lay out a plan for Texas-based software company Oracle to store and oversee the storage of that information. Faced with President Biden's demand that the company be sold or banned in the U.S., TikTok is also pouring millions into shifting the narrative away from national security concerns. NPR's Dara Kerr reports. TikTok is holding a press conference featuring influencers who have popular accounts like Back in the Kitchen with Bay. Other TikTok creators like Ashley Capps, who lives in Florida, are taking action online during Thursday's congressional hearing. I will be live streaming it, funnily enough, on my TikTok. Cap's livelihood depends on TikTok. It's how she gets clients for her business, where she teaches people skills like gardening and document research. She opposes a TikTok ban. I'm not even a fan of using the term ban because I just want to be snarky. I'm like, well, yeah, they banned drugs. Let me all see how that happened. TikTok spokesperson Jamal Brown told NPR that lawmakers should hear firsthand from people whose lives would be directly affected. The company says it has 150 million monthly active users in the U.S. TikTok has amped up its lobbying efforts. It spent $5.4 million on lobbying last year. That's in the same ballpark as Google and Facebook. In 2019, they spent essentially pennies on lobbying activity, and now they have spent the fourth most of any tech company lobbying Congress. Sarah Briner is the research director at Open Secrets, which is a nonprofit that tracks lobbying spending. Nothing spurs lobbying activity like the threat of being regulated. And now there are a lot of eyes on TikTok. Dara Kerr, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we visit a career fair on the campus of Mississippi State University, where recruiters from school districts across the state are desperately trying to hire new teachers amid a shortage in educators. It's 719. 
Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like Six, out of this world. Five. And liftoff of Artemis One. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage. TheMusicEmporium.com Partly sunny with highs in the mid-50s today. Tonight it'll be mostly cloudy with a low around 44. There's a slight chance of showers overnight, then more rain possible tomorrow morning. It'll be cloudy with a high near 60. It's 43 degrees in Boston. Celebrate the beginning of spring this week with our Spring Arts Guide. It has recommendations from the WBUR Arts and Culture team for new art exhibits to check out. The team also has seven albums worth a listen this spring. Check out the Spring Arts Guide today at WBUR.org. It's 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Association of Plastic Recyclers, whose member companies recycle plastic packaging into new products, working towards a world where everyone uses less by recycling more. Learn more at plasticsrecycling.org. And from the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world, where innovation meets the law. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Almost half of America's public schools were down at least one teacher this school year. You can blame low pay and politics and pandemic burnout. NPR's Corey Turner and Lauren Magaki visited a job fair in Mississippi where recruiters were seeking new teachers. I'm from Frisco, Texas. We're like busting out the seams. <laughs> so we're going everywhere to find good teachers. We have a lot of openings. Math and some science. We have a shortage of math teachers. One language, special education, high school English. So we're looking for a music teacher. We have a Yeah, a little bit of everything. Corey Turner shadowed a recruiter for Jackson, Mississippi. Dr. Tommy Knowles Jr. used to teach high school science in Mississippi's capital city, Jackson. Now he's trying to convince a new generation of teachers to do the same. They have to kind of have that certain grit, that certain fight, like we say, uh, that dog in them, so to speak, where they are tenacious, you know, they fit us. Knowles is head of recruitment for Jackson Public Schools. And even before the pandemic, he had a tough job. On average, the district loses one in five teachers every year. It doesn't help that Mississippi ranks near the bottom in teacher pay, and Jackson is embroiled in a years-long water crisis. And then there's the city's poverty. It follows children to school in the form of trauma, disruptive behavior, and lower test scores. But Tommy Knowles is an optimist, and on this sunny March morning on the campus of Mississippi State, he's arrived early with a plan. 
Knowles wears a gray plaid jacket with a blue cloth flower in his lapel. In one hand, coffee. In the other, he pulls a suitcase full of job fair pamphlets and giveaway goodies. I have eight interviews set up this afternoon. <laughs> eight interviews? Eight interviews. My first one starts at 11.30. When he checks in, good morning. Good morning. Good news. Jackson's been given a table just inside the doors. Prime real estate. Even now, as the school year winds down, Jackson's schools still have 88 vacancies out of about 1,700 teaching positions. To give you a sense of the impact of just one vacancy, we're going to leave this ballroom for a minute and go to Jackson. At Forest Hill High School, home of the Patriots, Principal Tory Hampton walks fast with a walkie-talkie. He's winded when he shows me around. I ask, how hard has it been to find a qualified Spanish teacher? Still hard. Hadn't found one yet. And yet, Hampton's walking me to a classroom full of students taking Spanish too. So I had to do what's best for children and change the class, but through our online platform, that means when we get to the room, instead of hearing Spanish, we hear this. Smooth jazz plays through speakers at the front of the class while students sit at their desks, library quiet. This one is... They're trying to translate English phrases into Spanish through a computer program on their laptops. Hey, wait, what just happened? Um, I saw a big red X. <laughs> if you get it wrong, it gives you a chance to try again. How do you like this? I think it's all right. Like, I think it would be better if we actually had a teacher. For much the past decade, enrollment in teacher training programs dropped nationwide by roughly a third. With fewer new teachers in the traditional pipeline, Jackson has to compete more than ever with better-funded suburban districts. So back at that job fair, just listen to these pitches from the competition. We are an A-rated district. There are a lot of high expectations, and you know we are that A-rated school. We have a beach that most places don't have, so... Listen, let me talk about the town a little bit. Vicksburg is very close-knit. Western Line is family, so everyone really gets to know each other. We still got a little bit of shopping that you can do. All right, so we have our own health clinic for teachers that's free. We can reimburse them for if they go and work out. We have instructional coaches at every one of our campuses. We pay really well. Texas probably pays better than most. So next year, it should be about 60000 In Jackson, the starting salary is less than 44000 there's also those A ratings we just heard about, doled out by the state for things like student test scores and absentee rates. Well, all over this job fair, districts trumpet their A ratings on banners. Districts that haven't had to deal with the poverty or systemic racism that Jackson has. So I asked Tommy Knowles, Jackson's recruiter, does that bother him? I mean, I'm of the mindset that, hey, if, if you're an A district, regardless of how you got it, you know, you're A, you know, promote that. Knowles proudly points out that Jackson's gone from an F rating just a few years ago to a high C. We're going to promote that we're a C, but one day just understand and know that our district is going to be right there with you. And we're going to be able to promote that we did it without all of the resources and without all of the affluence. Knowles faces one more challenge. Most of the candidates here are young white women, which reflects the teaching force nationwide. Jackson's students, on the other hand, are predominantly black after generations of white flight from the city. It takes more than 20 minutes for just one teacher candidate to stop at Knowles' table. Kiara Carr says she's hesitant to work in Jackson. It's kind of scary. 
I think that's why most people stray away from teaching there because of like what's been said on the news a lot. Knowles does get her attention though when he mentions the district is offering a signing bonus. Yeah, yeah for elementary we do seventy five hundred. That's that nice too. I should have led with that, huh? Yeah, you, you didn't say that. <laughs> While the bonus helps, Knowles says he wants teachers who want to work in Jackson. Later, a trio of promising candidates drop by Knowles' table, including Sydney Bearden. More than ever, we need to show up and show out and show these kids, here I am dedicating my time to teach you and advocate for you. In the end, I ask Knowles, how would he rate this job fair? Yeah, I would say B, B plus. Not quite an A because they're not beating the table down trying to get to Jackson, but we're working on that part of it. But nice, solid fare, good traffic. Tommy Knowles packs up his pamphlets and keychains and readies himself for another job fair and another chance to make his case for the children of Jackson. Corey Turner, NPR News, Starkville, Mississippi. You know, both my parents were public school teachers in Indiana. A lot of ups, a lot of downs, but I don't think they ever had to deal with times like these. This afternoon, All Things Considered, a program to grow a new generation of teachers inside the school system. You can listen on your computer, phone, smart speaker, or your radio. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Coming up here on Morning Edition, the factors the Federal Reserve will be weighing today as it decides whether to keep raising interest rates. And coming up at 8, how surfing has informed research into predicting and tracting coastal flooding and erosion. Listen to that here on 90.9 WBUR on the, or on the WBUR mobile app while on your commute. It's 729. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu slash graduate. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Classes in the Los Angeles Unified School District are canceled again today as thousands of union service employees continue their strike. Kaylee Wells with member station KCRW says bus drivers, custodians, and other employees walked off the job yesterday amid stalled contract talks. LA Unified is getting closer to the union's demands. Their latest offer includes a 23% wage increase. But union members say they need a 30% increase to pull some members above the poverty line. Lanita Brown has been working for LA Public Schools for 22 years. If he would meet these demands and give us more hours, increase the rate, a lot of people wouldn't have a second job. And the focus could be just right what they wanted on. You know what I'm saying? Just on the school district. Again, we're, we're here. We maintain. We've been here. The strike is set to last through Thursday. Meanwhile, teachers have been bargaining for months for a new contract, too, leaving school communities wondering if another strike is on the horizon. For NPR News, I'm Kaylee Wells in Los Angeles. The school district has more than a half million students. Economists remain divided on whether the Federal Reserve will announce another hike in interest rates today or pause amid concerns about rate increases on the banking sector. The recent failures of Silicon Valley Bank in California and Signature Bank in New York highlighted those concerns. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. 
A program that sends Boston students to schools and suburban communities says it needs more money to keep operating. The Metropolitan Council for Educational Opportunity, better known as METCO, is funded by the state. Governor Maura Healy is suggesting some cuts to funding for the group in her latest budget. METCO says it needs more money to retain staff and increase enrollment. Some Boston city councilors will introduce a plan today to publish an annual list of bad landlords. That list would include landlords with six or more code violations in the past year. Counselors behind the idea tell the Boston Herald it's meant to discourage bad behavior. Those listed would also be prevented from doing business with the city. People involved in women's college hockey are cheering the move to hold the women's bean pot at the Garden. The men have played at the home of the Bruins since the 1950s. Until now, the women have played at college rinks. That'll change next year. David Flint is head coach of this year's women's champs, the Northeastern Huskies. He calls the move to the Garden a big step forward for women's hockey. I think it's obviously the experience. It's pretty amazing when you get to play in a professional arena and for all the women to play in the bean pot to experience that it's going to be pretty special both the championship and the consolation games will be played at the garden in january the women's tournament will also have the same corporate sponsor as the men canton-based duncan it's seven we're funded by you our listeners and by into the woods coming to boston direct from broadway and with its broadway stars to boot two weeks only now through april 2nd Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com. Make it four wins in a row for the Bruins. They beat the Ottawa Senators 2-1 to last night at the Garden. The Bees will host the Montreal Canadiens tomorrow. The Celtics wrapped up their road trip with a win in Sacramento last night. They beat the Kings 132-109. to The Seas return home Friday to play the Indiana Pacers. And at spring training in Florida yesterday, the Red Sox lost to the Orioles 6-2. to The Sox play the Twins this evening. Mostly clear skies today with temperatures that may reach the mid-50s. Those fall only a bit tonight into the 40s and more clouds move in. Overnight, there's a slight chance of showers and tomorrow morning we may see more rain. Then it'll be cloudy with a high near 60. It's 43 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Select Quote. For over 35 years, Select Quote has been committed to helping customers find life insurance that fits their budget. Customers can shop multiple life insurance carriers and compare rates at selectquote.com. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. The Federal Reserve has a decision to make this afternoon. The central bank will determine whether to keep raising interest rates. The effort to bring down inflation would seem to call for a rate increase. Concern about the banking system may argue against that. Forecasters expect the central bank to push against inflation, boosting the benchmark interest rate by a quarter percentage point Once again, that would make it more expensive to get a car loan or carry a balance on your credit card. NPR Scott Horsley joins us now. Hey there, Scott. Good morning, Steve. Okay, people had been suggesting the Fed might take a break from raising rates, but I guess not. Right. Those concerns about the the banking system have not entirely been put to rest, but banks do seem to be on more solid ground now than they did a week or so ago. 
Yesterday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said big depositors are not pulling money out of banks the way they were a week or so ago. Bank stocks have rebounded in recent days. As a result, people now expect the Fed to kind of return to its regularly scheduled program, which means another hike in interest rates. One might read that as a vote of confidence that the banking system is stable enough to handle higher interest rates. In fact, economist Kathy Paschancek, who's with Nationwide, says at this point it might be alarming if the Fed decided to stand pat. I think it does come down to market psychology. If the Fed Reserve decided not to raise rates, it does raise that question of, uh oh, what does the Fed know that we don't know? And are things much worse than we perceive? Wow. Obviously, that's not the signal the Fed wants to send. As of this morning, oddsmakers put the likelihood of a quarter point interest rate hike at close to 90%. Well, what does that say about the fight against inflation then? It says the fight's not over. Um, Prices certainly aren't going up as fast as they were last summer when annual inflation topped out around 9%. But at 6% in February, inflation is still much higher than the Fed would like. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, before these bank failures rattled the market, uh, there was some expectation the Fed might go with an even larger half-point interest rate hike today. That's pretty much been taken off the table now. But Fed policymakers are definitely concerned about inflation. In particular, they're worried the price of services like airline tickets and streaming TV subscriptions is still climbing at a pretty rapid rate. A quarter-point interest rate hike today would push the Fed's benchmark rate to just under 5%. That's up from near zero a year ago. That's a very aggressive increase, and it's designed to make people think twice about borrowing and spending money. Scott, I know the Fed tries not to surprise people to telegraph where they're going next with interest rates. So how much higher might they go? Well, that's a good question. The forecast we got from Fed policymakers back in December suggested there might be one more quarter-point rate hike in store after today. Uh, we'll get an updated forecast from Fed officials this afternoon, and we'll see if that you know end state uh, changes. Just before the banking crash, a lot of people thought rates would have to go higher uh, in order to get a handle on this stubborn inflation. But now that's not so sure. Uh, the troubles at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank could make other banks more stingy about making loans. And Bischancic says that could put the brakes on the economy in the same way higher interest rates do. If that credit starts to get choked off, credit is the grease that makes the small businesses' wheels run and makes the overall economy run. And and you're going to have a pretty big, I would expect, a, a pullback. Now, a slowdown like that would help to curb inflation. Unfortunately, it would also make it more likely the economy tips into recession. NPR Scott Horsley, thanks. You're welcome. An intelligence-gathering tool that the government says is critical to national security will expire at the end of the year, unless Congress renews it. But lawmakers have concerns about the program, and that sets up what is expected to be a months-long battle over reauthorization. NPR Justice correspondent Ryan Lucas reports. At a recent congressional hearing, Attorney General Merrick Garland was asked about Section 702 of FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, a program for collecting the communications of foreigners overseas. Here's how Garland replied. Every morning I have a th- all threats briefing uh, with the FBI, with an intelligence community briefer, which with our national security division. A enormously large percentage of the threats information that we're receiving comes from 702 collection. And Garland, a man not generally prone to hyperbole, painted a dire picture of what failing to renew Section 702 by the end of the year would mean for U.S. national security. 
we would be intentionally blinding ourselves to extraordinary danger, in my view. And this is not a view that I've always held. This is something I've learned as I've been at the department. Section 702 allows the government, without an individual court order, to collect emails, text messages, and phone calls of foreigners overseas, even when they're talking to Americans. Congress has reauthorized Section 702 twice before over the objections of progressives who want more civil liberties protections. Back then, Republicans were staunch backers of government surveillance powers. But the political winds have shifted on Capitol Hill in the wake of revelations about FISA violations, particularly by the FBI including one case involving a former 2016 Trump campaign aide. Now, many GOP lawmakers are publicly demanding Section 702 be overhauled. That includes Utah Senator Mike Lee, who had this message for Garland. You can tell your department, not a chance in hell we're going to be reauthorizing that thing without some major, major reforms. The Republican chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Mike Turner, delivered a similar message in more measured tones to U.S. spy bosses testifying before his panel. There have been, and there continue to be, many abuses of FISA. It must be reformed. A recent government report documented violations, including the FBI's searching 702 databases for information about a sitting U.S. congressman, as well as a local political party. The first step, Turner told the spy chiefs, is to admit that there's a problem. Today, I am going to be looking to each of you for honesty and acknowledgement that FISA has been abused. Previous efforts to reform Section 702 have fallen short, but the current political dynamics present a rare chance to get changes on the books, says Elizabeth Goitin of the Brennan Center for Justice. This is a once-in-a-generation opportunity for reform because there is broad bipartisan support. The starting point for reform, in her view, is requiring the government to get a warrant before searching 702 data for Americans' communications. Since its inception, U.S. officials have touted Section 702 as a powerful tool to gather intelligence on terrorist groups. But now, with the fight against terrorism fading from the headlines, U.S. officials say 702 is mainly used to vacuum up intelligence on a range of high-priority threats. Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines rattled off a list for lawmakers this month. Malicious cyber actors targeting U.S. critical infrastructure, U.S. government efforts to stop components of weapons of mass destruction from reaching foreign actors, and even key intelligence related to threats emanating from China, Russia, North Korea, Iran. CIA Director William Burns even chipped in that 702 has been critical in the fight against fentanyl and Mexican cartels. The fact that usually tight-lipped intelligence officials are willing to provide examples in public of Section 702 successes is notable as is the fact that they're doing so more than nine months before the law expires. Both are signs that the administration is aware of the challenges that lie ahead in convincing a skeptical Congress to renew it. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. Coming up next on Morning Edition, we hear from an author whose new children's book is based on her own grandmother's story of being forced to cut off her hair to detach her from her native culture. And in our next hour, Tennessee whiskey company Jack Daniels is trying to stop production and marketing of a chewy dog toy called Bad Spaniels. The U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments in the case today. Mid-50s today under mostly sunny skies. Cloudy tonight and temperatures fall to the mid-40s. We may see showers overnight and tomorrow morning, otherwise cloudy and near 60 tomorrow. Right now it's 44 degrees in Boston at 743. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Datco Bus Company says it'll end its commuter bus service between New Bedford and Boston next month. Datco blames declining ridership for the decision. It tells the New Bedford Light the route has been running at a loss since the start of the pandemic. New Bedford's mayor says he's troubled by DATCO's decision. He's reached out to the state secretary of transportation to come up with a solution. The last rides are scheduled for April 16th. The state attorney general is suing Watertown-based Avatar Construction for allegedly underpaying workers. The lawsuit claims the company and its owner used fraudulent payroll forms to cover up the fact that it was underpaying five workers. The Boston Children's Museum is once again receiving accreditation status from the American Alliance of Museums. Only an estimated 3 percent of museums in the U.S. receive the status. Boston Children's Museum first received accreditation in 1972. It's 744. The Sweet 16 matchups are set. And for those of you who are cynical about college hoops, here's a different perspective. Cohesiveness, continuity, unselfishness, toughness, the ability to overcome adversity, those are some of the things that I've observed in this great tournament so far. How coaching and school culture can be the magic formula behind Cinderella teams on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates to fill job openings, all from their employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Some of the most contentious decisions in any family can be about hairstyles. Hair. For the author Carol Lindstrom, her disagreement was a clue to her family history and also what people did to her family. She wrote a children's book called My Powerful Hair and spoke with NPR's Elizabeth Blair. When Carol Lindstrom was a little girl growing up in Bellevue, Nebraska, she really wanted long hair. I used to use a blanket I had as a young baby, and I'd put it on my hair and pretend I had long hair, you know, <laughs> swing it around. But um, but her mother wouldn't let her. I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. No, every time I got a little bit long, she'd say, oh, you have to cut it. It's too wild. One clue that helped her get it was a black and white photograph that sat on top of the TV set. It was a picture of her grandmother and two great aunts. And they were wearing, you know, just these white smocks and their hair was just really chopped short and they had bangs. It just didn't look right, you know. And I remember asking my mom about that picture. What was grandma doing? And my mom didn't really know much about it other than to say, well, that was when grandma and your great aunts were sent to boarding school, Indian boarding school. At Indian boarding schools, children were subjected to all kinds of indignities. Lindstrom's grandmother and great aunts attended in the early 1900s. They were forbidden to speak their language and forced to cut their hair. 
Lindstrom is an enrolled citizen of the Turtle Mountain Band of Ojibwe. As an adult, she set out to find out more about her culture. The hair is such a big part of who we are and our identity. Mom never had long hair. She was told hers was too wild. Our reader introduced himself in his native language, Ojibwe. My name is Talon. I'm from the Turtle Mountain Reservation. In My Powerful Hair, a little girl relates the events of her life with the length of her hair. When my baby brother was born, my hair touched my shoulders. The gift of welcoming him into the world is woven into my hair. Ten-year-old Talon Jerome says most of the boys at his school have short hair, but he prefers to keep his long. Our hair is like the source of our strength and power and like memories and stuff like that. Talon learned about what happened at boarding schools from his mother, Sharona Jerome, a teacher at Turtle Mountain Elementary. She thinks my powerful hair will help her students. Because I really believe it's important for students to know why their hair is long. The other students who are maybe not as involved with their culture, they're learning from us. We are the generation that's teaching them our culture again. Carol Lindstrom says there was a time when publishers wouldn't even look at her stories about Native culture. And then, in 2014, We Need Diverse Books came about. The campaign pushed for greater diversity in publishing. And when that happened, the world suddenly went click. A publisher picked up her book, We Are Water Protectors. It became a bestseller. Lindstrom says she almost never saw Native Americans in books she read as a little girl. Those she did see were depicted as savages. She says, my powerful hair is her gift to kids who look like her. I just want children, especially that are Native, to see themselves in a positive way when they pick up a book. I didn't have that. It was always blonde hair, you know, real light, light colored skin. Not who I was when I was younger. I, I just didn't know where my people were. Lindstrom says her mother died in 2015 without ever learning the power of her hair. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Another hour of Morning Edition is still ahead. And at 11, it's Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview. Good morning, Tiziana. Happy Hump Day. Happy Hump Day, Rupa. Let's do this. Uh, so we have Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey joining us on Radio Boston today. She's with us once a month. You know, Steve Brown, our senior state house reporter, has an office at the state house, mm-hmm. so he actually meets up with her. She joins us from there. Uh, and we've got a good chunk of time to have a conversation on. And oh my gosh, right? So much to talk about. Yeah, right. yeah. I, You know, I think one really big question is where are we really on the search for a new general manager of the MBTA, especially oh, yeah given all the latest stuff that's gone down. Um, And then, you know, she just put her budget out. Mm -hmm. Big proposals uh, on everything from early education and care to, you know, clean jobs to um, uh, education assistance transitioning out of incarceration. I mean, there's an agenda there that can be read. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a chance to ask her about it and really dig into what her priorities are now that we've seen where the money goes. Yeah, yeah. Electrification, victims' assistance. There it's you very go. very interesting. She exactly. has specific things that she's going for. We will chat about it. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Thank you, TCM. Thanks, Rupa. Have a good time. That's Radio Boston today at 11. It's 7.50.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Peabody Essex Museum with Power and Perspective, Early Photography in China, exploring the history of art, politics, and power through April 2nd, PEM.org. I'm Rupa Shinoy, host of WBUR's Morning Edition. If you aren't an early riser like me, no problem. Download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Morning Edition or start from the top of the hour, all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldin. Many Americans regard the U.S. invasion of Iraq as a costly foreign policy mistake. But for Iraqis, that so-called mistake meant a war and occupation that brought one tragedy after the next, the consequences of which they still live with today. Iraqi poet and novelist Sinan Antoun has written extensively about the invasion 20 years ago that changed so many lives. I started by asking him about the war's legacy. The legacy to me is massive destruction of, of human life and of human spaces. Uh, that is the legacy of, of the invasion and of the occupation. Of course, some of that was caused by Al-Qaeda and by ISIS. But we did not have terrorism in Iraq before 2003. Yes, we did have a dictatorship that I wrote against and stood against. But the legacy of 2003 invasion is that it actually brought terrorism to Iraq and Iraqis had to pay a very high price for the war on terrorism that was fought in their cities and on their land and left its scars and traces in their daily life and in their future. You called it American terrorism in an article you recently wrote on the anniversary, the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion. When you say American terrorism, is that what you're referring to? If you take the definitions of terrorism, it's about acquiring political objectives by violence against innocent civilians. And that's what happened in Iraq. Because if we go back to the rationale, you know, the initial phase of the war was supposedly about weapons of mass destruction, right? But... It's important for listeners to understand that in 2002, it was obvious and it was confirmed that there were no weapons of mass destruction. So the war basically was waged based on a lie. And then when there were no weapons of mass destruction, there was a shift in the discourse saying, well, this is about democracy and about building a new country. Using depleted uh, uranium weapons back in 1991 in the first Gulf War and then using them again in 2003, and the research is all out there for listeners to go and look into it, what depleted uranium does to the bodies of Iraqi infants and men and women, and how children are born in Fallujah with birth defects because of the illegal weapons that were used there. And yet, there is no accountability, there is no acknowledgement, and this, to my mind, amounts to terrorism. It's been over a year now since Russia invaded Ukraine in that large-scale invasion. And much of the rhetoric was, this is unprecedented since World War II to invade a sovereign nation like this, including from people who were involved in the uh, U.S. invasion of Iraq. And I wondered what you thought. I mean, I'll play you a a clip from Biden on this issue. The idea that over 100,000 forces would invade another country... After war, since World War II, nothing like that has happened. 
Nothing like that has happened. I just wondered what you were thinking when you heard these types of things being said by U.S. officials, not even 20 years after that invasion. With the Russia and Ukraine issue, of course, there is the, you know, the narrative of the Cold War is playing in the background and it makes it so easy for so many Americans, irrespective of moral or ethical concerns, it's very easy to condemn Russia. But I think it says something also about the hypocrisy and the double standard of the politicians and the elite. You mentioned the word accountability, and I do wonder what you would want to see. It's been 20 years. You describe this moment as a time of lack of reflection when looking back on what happened and what was done. What does accountability look like? It looks like um, the, the folks who planned this war and who pushed for it and who later benefited from it have to stand up or they have to be, you know, uh, taken to court or they have to answer for what they did. Listeners should realize that there was a consensus in this country between right and left and that so many of the liberal uh, outlets also supported the war. So I guess there should be a question that a lot of American citizens have to think about is that why was the country so easily led to this war? And why were all those lies disseminated so easily through the media? These are questions that that we have to confront. Now, Sinan, you are of both of these places. You are American. You are also Iraqi. So you come from the country that was invaded, but also you come from the country that was the invader. What is it like? to be of both of those places as you think about the last 20 years and the legacy of both of these countries? Well, it's it's painful um, because, frankly, being in this country, and in 2002, I went around the East Coast um, with a group of uh, an Afghani-American woman, a Hiroshima survivor, and two relatives of 9-11 victims speaking at synagogues and churches and universities and saying why there shouldn't be a war. And yet seeing the war take place and the apathy of fellow citizens as to what was happening abroad in their name and with their tax dollars. And it's, it's a catastrophe that's ongoing. And, you know, as a citizen here, I always think that someone should be responsible wherever they live so, to what is being done in their name and, and with their resources. Yet we live in a country where... The infrastructure is crumbling, the education is suffering, and so one has to think about this war culture. And lastly, I'm sure you read in the news that the Navy decided to name its new warrior ship Fallujah after the city where some of the war's crimes took place. But then again, going back to this country's history, and now I am a citizen of this country, a lot of the weapons and the fighters are named after the Native American tribes that were decimated in the history of this country. So it's, you know, being haunted by the ghosts of the past. And who pays the cost for empire? Who pays the cost? Whose lives are devalued so that other lives are valued and to continue? It's a global question, but I think in this country, it's a very serious, very important question. Sinan Antun, poet, novelist, thank you for taking the time and joining us. Thank you for inviting me.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Stephen Skeep. We may reach the mid-50s today, and it'll be sunny. Tonight, temperatures fall to the low 40s. There's a slight chance of rain overnight, then a better chance of showers tomorrow morning. After that, Thursday will be cloudy with temperatures that may reach 60. It's 44 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. I'm All Things Considered executive producer Jonathan Kane, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Federal Reserve meets today to decide whether to continue raising interest rates amid ongoing high inflation and congressional scrutiny about bank failures. It's Wednesday, March 22nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up for the second day, hundreds of thousands of students are out of school in Los Angeles as support staff strike at the nation's second largest district. Also this hour, we visit a teenage tennis player who was forced to flee Ukraine after the Russian invasion. Now she's finding her footing in New Hampshire. I love this era. Lots of trees. I see tree, 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 tree. <laughs> Plus, researchers are studying ocean waves in order to make breakthroughs in the science of coastal flooding and erosion. The wind doesn't just affect how much the wave tubes, but it also affects at what location the wave breaks and how much turbulence the wave generates. Partly sunny in the 50s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Officials in New York City are prepared for possible protests this week if former President Donald Trump is indicted in a hush money case. NPR's Giles Snyder reports Republican lawmakers on Capitol Hill are urging any pro-Trump demonstrators to remain peaceful. There's been a lot of speculation about whether protests will materialize. Authorities say there does not seem to be any organized effort. But Trump's call for protests and social media posts over the weekend has sparked concern. Louisiana Senator John Kennedy is among the Republicans who are calling on any demonstrators to keep it peaceful. Protest all you want to, but get all the proper permits and don't break the law. The grand jury in Manhattan is deciding whether Trump should be charged in the hush money case involving the adult film star Stormy Daniels. Joel Snyder, NPR News. The U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments today in a trademark infringement case that's being brought by Tennessee whiskey producer Jack Daniels. As NPR's Nina Totenberg reports, the company sued the maker of a chewy dog toy that parodies the brand. Jack Daniels is trying to stop the sale of the dog toy, contending that it infringes on its trademark, confuses consumers, and tarnishes its reputation. VIP, which manufactures the dog toy and sells it in major stores across America, says it's not infringing on the trademark, it's spoofing it. The toy looks like a vinyl version of a Jack Daniels whiskey bottle, but the label is called Bad Spaniels, features a drawing of a spaniel, and instead of promising 40% alcohol by volume, promises 43% poo. 
VIP argues that nobody would confuse the toy with Jack Daniels. Rather, it says its product is a humorous and expressive work and thus immune from claims of trademark infringement. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. In Ohio, Freight Railroad Norfolk Southern is offering safety training for first responders. This comes after a hazardous train accident in East Palestine, Ohio, last month. IdeaStream Public Media's Abigail Botar has more. First responders interacted with a mobile safety train equipped with a tank car, flat car, and locomotive. The training helps them get a sense of what the different parts of a train are and what they would need to do in the case of an accident. Connor Spielmaker with Norfolk Southern says they plan to train about 350 first responders in the next two weeks. The safety train will also make a dozen stops across the company's routes this year. We're expanding this program to do more stops every year to do these trainings, to make these, build these relationships, and make sure that we're hitting the communities that we, that we serve. Norfolk Southern has also committed to creating a permanent training facility in Ohio after coming under scrutiny for the hazardous derailment in East Palestine last month. For NPR News, I'm Abigail Botar. This is NPR. From WBMR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A Boston city councilor wants to ban the sale of mini bottles of alcohol. Those are also known as nips. Councilor Ricardo Arroyo says bans in other communities have been shown to reduce alcohol-related health calls. He adds there's another benefit. These nip bottles find themselves in our neighborhoods and in our streets, and it turns out that they're not actually able to go into the recycling machines because they're so small they actually clog them. The Boston City Council will take up Arroyo's proposal today. Chelsea was the first city in Massachusetts to ban nips in 2018. Four other communities have also banned their sale. A text hotline for young people in crisis is asking for more money from the state to continue the program. Leaders with the Hey Sam hotline say they interacted with nearly 1,000 people since going live last year. Governor Healy wants to cut the group's funding by more than half in her latest budget, but organizers are asking for $1 million more million to expand their services. The head of Bay State Health has issued a public statement following the arrest last week of one of its family medicine doctors. That doctor lived in Winchester and Amherst. He's facing federal charges of possessing child pornography and using a hidden camera to film patients. Karen Brown reports. CEO Mark Kerouac published a letter online that said the hospital placed the doctor, Bradford Ferrick, on unpaid leave once they learned he was being investigated by the FBI. A hospital spokesperson said that happened on February 15th and that the hospital only learned the extent of the charges more recently. Legal documents show the FBI became suspicious of the doctor about a year earlier before he came to Bay State. The hospital spokesperson said law enforcement has asked Bay State to direct people with specific concerns to the U.S. Attorney's Office and that Bay State staff has access to counseling through the Employee Assistance Program. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Karen Brown. Lexington wants to ban the sale of animal fur products. A ban was approved at a town meeting last night. It prohibits the sale of any fur products within the town's borders. The bylaw needs to be approved by the state attorney general before it can take effect. If it does, Lexington will be the sixth community in the state to enforce a fur ban. That list includes Cambridge, Brookline, and Plymouth. It's 8.06. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. The Celtics beat the Kings 132-109 to last night in Sacramento. The Seas are off until Friday when they'll host the Indiana Pacers. The Bruins beat the Ottawa Senators 2-1 to last night at the Garden. The Bees will host the Montreal Canadiens tomorrow. Partly sunny today with a high in the 50s, cooler right at the coast, increasing clouds overnight with a chance for a shower. Temperatures will drop into the 40s. Cloudy with showers likely tomorrow. It'll be in the upper 50s. Right now, it's 44 degrees in Boston at 8.07. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldin. The latest storm to hit California whipped up 80-mile-an-hour gusts. It knocked out power. It downed trees that derailed an Amtrak train and killed a motorist. And it dropped more rain on places already drenched by storm after storm. And one of those places is the San Joaquin Valley, where Jasmine Garst checked in on the damage. Johnny Dykstra is a farmer in Tulare, California. He's mainly a dairy farmer, but also grows almond, pistachio, wheat, and corn. He gets emotional as he talks about his family. I'm a fourth-generation dairy farmer. My great-grandpa started in 1938, so we've been going at it for 85 years now, and hopefully we can make it through this and keep going more than that. When Dykstra talks about water, it's as if it was a creature, one he spent years hoping would return. But now it's back and swallowing the land whole. I call it like our Elmo. It's kind of our last stand is doing everything we can to make sure that the cows stay dry and and stay safe. So, I mean, we'll keep continue fighting. We're just at the mercy of what the water wants to do. The West has been experiencing extreme drought for years. In California's San Joaquin Valley, water is an obsession. Drive through and you'll see billboards that read, pray for rain. This year was different. A series of storms dumped buckets of rain, which flooded the area. On top of that, the Sierra Nevada, the mountain range that flanks the valley, received record snow, which is starting to melt. This is the sound of the Thule River raging down from the Sierra. Dykstra's farm is now an island. It can't be reached. In just one week, they got over six inches of water, covering a thousand acres of their land. He says he has little hope that his crops will survive, and he's running out of dry land for his cows. Dykstra, who says he's already reeling from loans he took out during the pandemic, is unsure about the future. A lot of folks here are. So far in this county, 11,000 people are under evacuation orders. Sitting in his backyard, Fidelino Cisnero Valdez says his neighbors were evacuated a few days ago. He was spared, but he's not sure how he'll fare with the next storm. Valdez says in the 30 or so years since he came from Mexico, he's picked every kind of crop. Oranges, lemons, olives, grapes. His daughter also works in the fields. This is the story of many workers here. Grandparents, parents and children picking side by side. It's overwhelmingly Mexican immigrants who are paid by how much they pick. Valdez says a day without work is difficult. Weeks on end, disastrous. 
la gente vive desde el campo, vive del campo, vive del trabajo del campo. People here, he says, are from the land and live off the land. If there's no work, the money runs out. But the bills keep getting higher. Unfortunately, so do the water levels. We prayed for rain and we got it. That's Frances Lloyd. She lives in the nearby town of Lindsay, known for its olive groves. Many of those groves have now become small lakes. The water also seeped into Lloyd's garage and basement. This morning, she's sweeping it out before the next storm hits and throwing out damaged furniture. Just a few miles away, Lewis Creek is raging. A few days ago, with the previous storm, it breached. I'm young and I'm frustrated. You know, I'm young and I'm tired of seeing this. At age 24, the mayor of Lindsay, Hippolito Angel Cerros, is the youngest mayor in California. But he's already seen his town suffer year after year of drought and now flooding. If this doesn't mean that we need to take action, I don't know what else we need to go through. He's the only official we speak to around here who says the words climate change. You know, I think regardless of political affiliation, climate change impacts us all. But he says it affects workers especially hard. He knows his mother works in the fields. And she couldn't even go to work because of the, the streets were flooded. You know, a lot of these people, they're unfortunately living paycheck to paycheck, you know, barely given a, a livable wage, you know, and so... They can't just sit at home and wait until the weather passes. They have to bring some bread to the table. Saro says it's time to stop acting like these catastrophic weather events are a rarity and prepare for them being the norm. Jasmine Garst, NPR News in the San Joaquin Valley, California. At the U.S. Supreme Court today, one side will be talking about its iconic liquor bottle and trademark. The other side will be talking about parody and free expression. And both will be talking about dog poop. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg explains. Jack Daniels, the famous Tennessee whiskey company, is trying to stop production and marketing of a chewy dog toy called Bad Spaniels. The toy, shaped and decorated like a Jack Daniels bottle, features a spaniel and the name Bad Spaniels on the label instead of the iconic Jack Daniels name. And instead of promising 40% alcohol by volume, it promises, quote, 43% poo by volume, 100% smelly. The toy is part of a line of chewy dog toys called Silly Squeakers, which parodies other famous brands and is manufactured by VIP products. VIP's owner Stephen Sacris says he got the idea for the Bad Spaniels parody when he found himself at a bar staring at a Jack Daniels bottle. So he picked up the phone and called his graphics designer. I go, I got two words for you. She's like, what? I go, Bad Spaniels. And she's like, I got it. Within 48 hours, they had the draft designed for a new toy that is now the company's best-selling product in major stores across the country. Jack Daniels Whiskey is not amused. It has been trying, so far unsuccessfully, to stop VIP from selling the Bad Spaniels toy. Today, Jack's lawyer is telling the Supreme Court that the toy infringes on its trademark, confuses consumers, and tarnishes its reputation. Jack Daniels would not allow its lawyer to be interviewed for this broadcast, but as it argues in its brief, Jack Daniels loves dogs and appreciates a good joke as much as anyone. But Jack Daniels likes its customers even more and doesn't want them confused or associating its fine whiskey with dog poop. VIP's lawyer, Bennett Evan Cooper, has a terse reply. Freedom of speech begins with freedom to mock. 
And he says, Jack Daniels misses the point when it equates the Bad Spaniel's toy with knockoffs like marijuana-laced Oreos marketed as Stonios. There is no bottle of dog poo being sold. It's a pretend trademark on a pretend label for a pretend bottle full of pretend contents. The entire thing is a parody. Jack Daniels' brief goes on for pages about Jack's history and its trademark name, which, quote, appeals to whiskey drinkers from bikers to bankers and is today the most valuable spirit brand in the world. The brief waxes poetic about the iconic status of Jack Daniels, noting that the brand is featured in countless movies, television shows, celebrity photos, and songs. Jack Daniels, if you please, knock me to my knees. You can kill this pain. The Jack Daniels Company argues that it licenses its trademark to preserve its reputation, including licensing dog collars and leashes. It contends that the lower court was wrong to conclude that the Bad Spaniel's toy was a humorous and expressive work and thus immune from claims that it infringed on Jack Daniels' trademark. Supporting Jack are the Chamber of Commerce and the National Association of Manufacturers. Their lawyer, Gregory Garr, was willing to talk about why his clients are worried about this case. The concern here is that producers could confuse consumers and ultimately dilute brands that, that companies have invested millions and, in some case, you know, billions in preserving over time. Or, as Jack Daniels' brief puts it, if the lower court ruling is allowed to stand, anyone could use a famous trademark to sell sex toys, drinking games, or marijuana bongs. Lawyer Cooper, representing the dog toy company, counters that consumers are not confused by the Bad Spaniel's toy. The source of the confusion here is not that people think that this product comes from Jack Daniels, but the misimpression, which hopefully we can clarify in this lawsuit, that you need the permission of somebody to parody them. The Supreme Court in modern times has been quite protective of parody. In 1994, the court ruled unanimously in favor of Two Live Crew, a rap group that parodied the song Oh Pretty Woman with raunchy lyrics. That case, though, involved the fair use of a copyrighted song, and this case involves federal trademark statutes. The whiskey company claims that the imitation Bad Spaniel's vinyl bottle has appropriated the iconic Jack design for just one purpose, to sell a chewy dog toy. And by doing that, the company claims Jack's property rights have been infringed even if the chewy dog toy is expressive. Yeah, the other night I lay sleeping, and I woke from a terrible Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Supreme Court reporter George Thorogood is well there. Scientists who study waves have confirmed what surfers already know. The best waves are created by winds. Falk Federson is a professor at Scripps Institute of Oceanography at UC San Diego. The wind doesn't just affect how much the wave tubes, but it also affects at what location the wave breaks and how much turbulence the wave generates. Federson and his team of researchers wanted to know more about how that works, so they took a trip to the Kelly Slater wave company Surf Ranch. Yes, there really is a surf ranch on the central California coast. It's essentially can be treated as a laboratory. We could control the waves, 
but then the wind naturally varied. They found offshore winds make the best tube or barrel waves. You can picture them now, the top of the wave curving downward, maybe a surfer in there looking tiny. Offshore wind is when the wind blows from land straight out to sea. Onshore wind is when wind blows from sea straight onto land. The researcher will help create wave models that can be used to predict and track coastal flooding and shore erosion. And if surfers should also get some clues from all this, they'll surely be stoked. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Good morning. Coming up on Morning Edition, why President Biden is branding bank bailouts as a lifeline for small businesses and jobs. And in 20 minutes, hundreds of thousands of students won't be in school again today as support staff in L.A. continue a strike at the second largest district in the U.S. It's 819. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders building healthy, high-performance homes for families and for the future, supporting the 15th annual MIT Sustainability Summit, focusing on demystifying carbon markets, April 28th. Learn more at sustainabilitysummit.mit.edu and thoughtforms-corp.com. A Boston-area venture capitalist who helped create Ethernet technology is the winner of the 2023 Turing Award. Back in 1973, Bob Metcalf created the technology that helps computers communicate, and that helped lead to the high-speed Internet we know today. The Turing Award is often referred to as the Nobel Prize of Computing. It comes with a $1 million prize. Partly sunny with highs in the mid-50s today. Tonight it'll be mostly cloudy with a low around 44. There's a slight chance of showers overnight. More rain possible tomorrow morning, then cloudy with a high near 60. It's 44 degrees in Boston at 820. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Keeper, a password manager designed to keep passwords secure and protect against cyber attacks. Websites and app logins are accessible across devices, and passwords are shareable. More at keepersecurity.com. And from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skip, And I'm Leila Faldil. The history of bank bailouts seems to be informing the way President Biden is approaching banks today. It's a history of anger. You may recall this. In 2008, the United States spent hundreds of billions of dollars to face the financial crisis, and people really did not like the spending. Congress even rejected the bailout once before passing it. And that anger 
lasted. It was the backdrop to the rise of the Tea Party movement on the right, Occupy Wall Street on the left, and the years that followed and what came after that was Donald Trump's presidency built in part on anger against the government. Which could explain something the Biden administration is doing now. They have intervened in the banking sector after two regional banks failed recently, but they have insisted this is not a bailout. NPR's Asma Khalid begins with a man who knows why. Bob Inglis was a member of Congress from South Carolina. But in 2010, after a dozen years in office, he was overwhelmingly defeated by a fellow Republican. I had committed various heresies against Tea Party orthodoxy. I committed the mortal sin of voting for TARP, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, President Bush's Rescue of the Banks. The Tea Party had risen up in conservative circles, in part out of anger at taxpayer dollars being used to bail out banks. And Inglis says voters could not forgive him. There was a sense that the public was picking up the bill for the bad behavior. That anger also gave birth to Occupy Wall Street. It united the right and the left and sparked an economic populism that some would say even led to the election of Donald Trump. And so when President Biden explained why his administration had stepped in to rescue Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, he did not utter the word bailout. No losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Let me repeat that. No losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Still, some Republicans, especially those eyeing a 2024 presidential run, were eager to point fingers at Biden. Joe Biden is leading us toward a Great Depression. I've been saying it for a long time. There should be no bailouts. The greatest form of corporate cronyism that we've seen in a very long time. You have to connect this, too, to the failed policies of President Joe Biden and his administration on this economy. I mean, we're looking That was former President Donald Trump, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, and former Vice President Mike Pence. But Republicans are not the only ones calling this a bailout. Even some on the left, like Adam Green with the Progressive Change Campaign Committee, don't buy the administration's semantic argument. It's politically toxic for politicians in either party to be seen as bending the rules to favor the rich and powerful. And whether you call it a ballot or not, that's what is happening here. Green understands why the administration immediately acted. But he says a lot of people still think of the intervention as a bailout. And so Biden would be wise to focus on holding bankers responsible. Otherwise, he worries there could be consequences in 2024. I think it's an Achilles heel, potentially, if Democrats are left holding the bag for what's seen as a bank bailout, while someone like Donald Trump or DeSantis come along and basically sees absurdly the mantle of economic populism. I asked a bunch of political analysts how this banking turmoil could affect 2024. And frankly, the consensus is that it is way, way too early to know. But beyond rhetoric, there are other policy lessons learned from the last big bailout in 2008. Jim Messina was a top aide to Barack Obama, and he points out that this most recent rescue is different. The shareholders of the banks and the bondholders of the banks don't get made whole and they go bankrupt. And I think that's an evolution from 2008 in part because of the politics. The other big political takeaway from 2008 is that the government needs to respond more quickly. Brendan Buck was an aide to two former Republican leaders in the House, John Boehner and Paul Ryan. I think this administration probably realizes that the biggest risk is erring on the side of doing too little. And that if this is a moment that we get through because they act aggressively, and it's forgotten about in a few months, then this is not a problem for them. 
In other words, the biggest risk in doing too little is that the bank failures spread, and that could alter the course of Biden's presidency. Asma Khalid, NPR News. Some other news now. Scientists think they've found a building block of life, and they found it on an asteroid. A robotic spacecraft returned samples that could provide clues about the beginnings of life on Earth. NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports. A few years ago, a Japanese spacecraft called Hayabusa 2 paid a visit to an asteroid named Yugu. It's a diamond-shaped chunk of rock about half a mile across. The little Hayabusa spacecraft bopped down onto the asteroid surface, snatched a sample, and flew back to Earth. Amy Williams is an astrobiologist at the University of Florida. She says that asteroids like this have a lot of organic molecules. Not life, but chemical building blocks for life. It's always exciting to have sample return missions because when we can collect samples from where they're, they're made, it actually removes all of the bias of a potential terrestrial contamination. When she says terrestrial contamination, she's talking about us. Life on Earth smearing our DNA all over the place. One of the big goals is to figure out whether organic molecules from space started life on Earth. Maybe some asteroid impacts brought critical chemicals. Writing in the journal Nature Communications, a team of Japanese scientists now report that the asteroid Yugu had something on it called uracil. Uracil is a nucleobase, like the G's, A's, T's, and C's that make up DNA, except uracil is found in RNA. And that's particularly interesting because some scientists suspect life started with RNA. In some models for the evolution of life, there's the idea that RNA was the major genetic information molecule before DNA. So did Uracil arrive on an asteroid? And if it did, did it spark life? If I knew that, then I would be accepting some kind of award. Researchers are hoping for more answers soon. NASA has its own asteroid sample return mission scheduled to land later this year. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, Pakistan's parliament meets today in a special session amid continued nationwide unrest by supporters of former Prime Minister Imran Khan. It's 8.29. Coming to City Space on Monday, March 27, March for Our Lives co-founder David Hogg will discuss the five-year anniversary of the Parkland school shooting. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, Governor Maura Healey joins us for our monthly check-in. Lots going on from her search for new leadership at the MBTA to investments she wants to make in early education and clean energy. Plus, she's got a new hire focused on making sure the state gets federal money when it applies. Maura Healey is on Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. 
The CEO of Moderna is expected to testify today to members of a Senate committee. As NPR's Giles Snyder reports, Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont is expected to press for answers on why the drug maker plans a sharp price hike for its COVID-19 vaccine. Senator Sanders argues that Moderna should not raise the price of its vaccine because of the government funding the company received. He claims taxpayers paid to develop Moderna's vaccine through the company's participation in Operation Warp Speed. Moderna is planning to quadruple the price to more than $100 per dose when purchases shift from the government to the private sector later this year. More rain is expected today in central and southern California. The National Weather Service says additional flooding is possible. Flood watches are posted over a wide area. Agricultural officials say thousands of acres of farmland are underwater. As a result, prices for berries are expected to rise in the short term. NPR's Jasmine Gars says the flooding is costing farm workers money. Farm work is not a job that pays a lot. And when I spoke to the United Farm Workers, they told me they estimate the storms have cost workers one or two months worth of wages. Forecasters expect the latest stormy weather to continue through tonight. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Boston School Committee plans to take up a $1.4 billion budget for Boston Public Schools tonight. That's a 5% spending increase compared to this year's budget. The added money is going toward a new literacy curriculum. It'll also be used to improve the programs educating students with disabilities and English language learners. A legal advocacy group is urging the state to step up its efforts to keep low-income people enrolled in mass health. Federal Medicaid pandemic protections expire next month. That means the state will have to redetermine eligibility for people on mass health for the first time in three years. Ivan Espinosa-Metigal is with the Lawyers for Civil Rights. He says the state's plan to send letters to families' homes with re-enrollment instructions in English is not enough. With the instability, not to mention the medical hardships and the health challenges that the pandemic has thrust upon people, it is critically important for us to have more safeguards for mass health recipients. The group has asked the state to do more direct outreach in more languages. The spring weather is encouraging more people in Massachusetts to get outside, and it's having the same effect on black bears here. They're coming out of hibernation and looking for food. Dave Waddles is a black bear biologist with Mass Wildlife. He says it's important to make sure there's nothing in your yard that could attract bears. Bird feeders train bears to come to your yard to come to other people's yards, to come up onto your deck to try to find food. Bears are smart. They learn that that's the easiest place to find food rather than looking for natural foods in the forest. And they they come to those places. Waddles says if you see a bear on your property, give it space and let it pass through. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Don Quixote. Returning for the first time in more than 10 years, on stage now through the 26th. 
Tickets at bostonvalet.org. The Bruins won their fourth straight game last night. They beat the Ottawa Senators 2-1 to at the Garden. The Bees will host the Montreal Canadiens tomorrow. The Celtics ended their road trip last night with a win. They beat the Sacramento Kings 132-109. to The Seas are now off until Friday. At spring training in Florida yesterday, the Red Sox lost to the Orioles 6-2. to The Sox play the Twins tonight. Mostly clear skies today with temperatures that may reach the mid-50s. Those fall a bit tonight to the 40s and more clouds move in. Overnight, there's a slight chance of showers and tomorrow morning we may see more rain. Then it'll be cloudy with a high near 60 tomorrow. It's 44 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks DayQuil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vicks.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. In Pakistan, political tensions are running high. Yeah, you could almost say Pakistani politics are continuously tense, a history of coups and protests and executions and insurgencies and movements. But this latest episode is distinctive. The government has been investigating a former prime minister, Imran Khan. They've accused him of corruption, even as he tries to reclaim power. His party has staged protests, which have continued up to now, prompting talks this week that the government could outlaw Khan's party. NPR's Dia Hadid is following this story in Islamabad, and she joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so tell us what's happening right now. Well, the Pakistani parliament is meeting today to discuss the political situation, but as Steve mentioned, local media suggests that they'll consider outlawing the party mm. that's headed by the former Prime Minister Imran Khan. And that comes after clashes last week between Khan supporters and security forces when police tried to arrest the former Prime Minister. And there were clashes again on Saturday outside the courts in the capital, Islamabad. And since then, there's been mass arrests of Imran Khan supporters. And one of Khan's close allies is a fellow called Tamar Jagra. He's a former provincial finance minister. And he's warning that outlawing Khan's party will be a mistake. It will further erode the political temperature in the country. And uh, that's not good for Pakistan, uh, given how volatile the political situation is. It will make Imran Khan even more popular because it will make the bias of the government uh, even more naked. Even more naked. And as Parliament plans to meet, Khan will be holding a large rally in Lahore. That's Pakistan's second largest city. So it's likely to be a show of muscle. Mm. So this sounds like a really worrying trajectory then. This is a popular political figure. How did it all get here? Well, um, let's step back a bit. Khan was ousted from power in April last year in a no-confidence vote. He didn't have the numbers. He's been calling for elections since then. But a few months ago, it became increasingly clear that Khan's popularity was on the rise and the government's popularity was tanking. And so the government doesn't want to lose power. But also analysts say the government's cracking down hard on Imran Khan because he pursued a crackdown against them when he was in power. Mm. And if there are free and fair elections, Khan's party now would likely have the largest number of votes. And so that cycle of revenge may well continue. 
So analysts say they're not optimistic of a breakthrough anytime soon, like Amber Rahim Shamsi. She was one of Pakistan's leading journalists. Now she's an analyst. I hope better sense prevails. Uh, and I think at the moment we're really grasping at hope. I fear more violence because obviously Imran Khan is not backing down, despite all his indications that he's willing to talk. Nadia, as we heard Steve say, Pakistan has faced many crises over the years. Why is this more worrying than other times? So analysts say this is an important moment because Pakistan is facing multiple snowballing crises mm-hmm. right now. The country's on the brink of default, inflation soaring, people are skipping meals to get by. Five million people are on the brink of famine. Climate change is battering the country with heat waves and floods. And all the forces that once helped smooth over the country's problems just don't appear to be working. Pakistan's military appears to be openly divided about Imran Khan. So are the courts, so are lawyers, and so are people. NPR's Dia Hadid in Islamabad. Thank you so much. Thank you, Leila. More than 400,000 students in Los Angeles are out of school for a second day. Support staff, including bus drivers and teacher's assistants, are on strike. School Superintendent Alberto Carvalho was on NPR's All Things Considered last evening. I understand the hurt, uh, which goes back many, many years. We are a new team that, quite frankly, is trying to rectify some degree of uh, historical injustice when it comes to compensation for some of the lowest wage earners in our community. For the moment, though, some of the stress falls on parents and caregivers. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo reports. Parents and students are settling into day two of LAUSD schools being shut down. There's a picket line at the Gardena bus yard and a news conference at Polytechnic High School in Sun Valley. And demonstrations continue at countless schools around the city. But there's no sign of renewed talks by the two sides. Today's rallies will once again be under a steady pour of rain for most of the day. But if yesterday is any indication, the weather won't stop thousands of workers from showing their support for the Service Employees International Union Local 99 and from showing their distaste for the district's superintendent, Alberto Carvalho. Crowds are set to descend once more on bus depots, schools, and the district's headquarters. Demonstrators include some of the union's 30,000 members, but also teachers who are standing in solidarity and not crossing the picket line. Like Rose Kim, a 12th grade teacher at Robert F. Kennedy Community Schools. We as teachers already need so much help, and without our TAs, without our campus aides, without our cafeteria workers and bus drivers, like school wouldn't function the way it does. The union is trying to show how critical they are to the operation of schools jobs that the members feel deserve better wages, better benefits, and more help. They're seeking a 30% wage increase over four years, among other things. The district has countered with a 23% increase over five years, but the union isn't budging. Carvalho maintains that such a big raise could bankrupt the district, and that looming contract negotiations with the teachers also involve a significant pay raise. The superintendent tweeted yesterday that the district remains ready to resume negotiations. He noted that the pay raise the district has already offered is intended to address historic inequities. But for special education assistant April Moreno, it isn't enough. It's kind of a slap in the face, like, okay, you're going to come in working at $18 an hour when people are in and out are making $21 an hour. She's carrying a sign addressing the superintendent as she marches. She just says, I eat ramen because of you, Carvajal. 
The low wages have also forced veteran campus aide Jessica Nunez to make sacrifices. She and her children live with multiple roommates. While she's at the demonstration, her kids are at home working on their computers. How are we going to live with what we made? It's check by check, penny by penny. Despite the rain and the conditions, spirits are still mostly high. We're going to stay strong. We're going to stay strong. Helping to keep the atmosphere light are music teachers and band directors, who all came ready to serenade the workers' ongoing fight. The one that drowns out the noise and gets people dancing? A tuba. Sequoia Carrillo, NPR News, Los Angeles. noting in this hour we had a story referencing surfing and school is still out just a suggestion students it's npr news coming up on morning edition we check in on a teenage ukrainian tennis player who took refuge in new england after the russian invasion now she's finding her footing in new hampshire then at nine it's the bbc news hour climate change is putting the drinking water supply at risk in places across the globe. Today, a closer look at Somalia, which is in the grip of a severe drought. Listen to that here on 90.9 WBUR or on the WBUR mobile app. It's 843. Near 50 today under mostly sunny skies, cloudy tonight and temperatures fall to the 40s. We may see showers overnight and tomorrow morning, otherwise cloudy and near 60 tomorrow. Right now it's 44 degrees in Boston at 843. WBUR supporters include Uncommon Feasts Catering, full-service culinary events for your social or corporate gatherings, Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Gather around. Let's feast. Local Starbucks workers are joining employees at dozens of other stores nationwide in a walkout. Workers at the store near Porter Square in Somerville say they're taking part in a strike right now. They call it a national day of action against Starbucks's pushback against unionization efforts. Employees at nearly 300 stores have unionized in the last couple of years. Springfield-based New England Public Media is laying off 17 people. That's 20 percent of its staff. The NPR affiliate and public television station blames three years of, quote, financial headwinds for the cuts. The layoffs come as the NPR network prepares to cut 10 percent of its staff this week. The Tavern in the Square plans to open three new locations in Greater Boston. The restaurant's owners say those will be in Framingham, Dedham, and Weymouth. The chain is also planning two locations in New Hampshire, which will be the first in that state. It's 8.45. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Handel and Haydn Society. H&H breathes new life into Vox Easter Oratorio, March 31st and April 2nd at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A promising teenage tennis player who fled Ukraine last year when Russia invaded now lives in New Hampshire. Todd Bookman reports the young player is finding her way in America through the sport she loves. Let's go. Up. Nice. During a flash of warm weather this winter, a circus of little kids runs around a tennis court. 
In the middle, yes. Paulina Makarenko, 17 years old, conducting them with her racket. Yes, good job. Next, guys. Paulina is single-handedly improving the tennis games of an entire neighborhood of kids. The parents pay her a little money, donations really, to help support her own tennis. Her goal? To play college in America. So had you ever heard of New Hampshire? Nope. <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> really good. I like, um, I love this era. Yeah, lots of trees. Lots of trees. Just, I see tree, 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 tree. <laughs> Paulina and her mom Nina have spent about nine months now in Hampton Falls. They're staying in a home owned by a local church surrounded by woods. Like others who had to flee Ukraine, Paulina has a seared-in memory of the day of the invasion. It's four o'clock. I wake up. I have a school day. Uh, it's a Thursday, February 24. Wake up because a uh, bomb. They could hear shelling in the distance. She said her father grabbed their documents, and they all went to stay with an aunt in another part of the city. First day we wait, I don't know, just wait, um, we not believe. Lots of rockets and it's really loud. This night we go to basement. They spent the next 14 nights in the basement. After two weeks of shelling, Paulina and her mom made the decision to go to Poland. Her father, like other Ukrainian men, wasn't allowed to leave. They had limited time to pack. She grabbed what she could. My clothes. <laughs> And uh, my backpack. Uh, it's a tennis backpack. So you brought your clothes and a tennis racket? <laughs> yes. 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 <laughs> That's all. After three months in Poland, Paulina and her mom were connected with an American who was willing to sponsor them. They were approved for what's called humanitarian parole, essentially a two-year visa. In Hampton Falls, a small team of families, mostly connected with a church in town, got organized. They arranged their housing, coordinated all the paperwork, and managed donations. Katie McLaughlin is one of the helpers. When they got here, there were a lot of tears and just a lot of emotional stuff to deal with. Very, It was very hard. Paulina enrolled at Winnicott High School, where she's in her junior year. Her mom Nina started taking English classes and recently got part-time jobs at a local restaurant and Home Depot. They've settled here, in a way, which means that the thing that was central to the whole family before the war, Paulina's tennis, is back, front and center. I think the first few times I saw you play tennis, you, you had a smile on your face that I hadn't really seen before. Before COVID and then the invasion, Paulina was ranked in the top 50 for juniors in Ukraine. But here, she's starting from scratch. She doesn't have a ranking yet because she's only played in a few tournaments. Most teenagers hoping to play in college train year-round, five, six days a week. They work with a coach. They have hitting partners and a routine. Paulina is cobbling it all together. And do some approach shots. Katie reached out to everyone she could find in the local tennis community. Coaches responded by offering free or discounted lessons, including Chum Steele, who played in the U.S. Open and Wimbledon, and now gives instruction at a club in Northampton. More spin. Save your swing just as hard, but you have more spin. Tonight, Paulina is hitting with a 79-year-old member of the club, while Chum gives advice. He thinks she's good enough already, despite the upheaval of the past year, to play in college. Tremendous ground strokes, tremendous power, and she needs lots of match play experience. That's the, that's the big thing that she's lost in the last couple of years. To get that extra experience, she may skip the high school team in favor of private instruction and elite regional tournaments. But school is otherwise going well. Her English is rapidly improving. She's got friends. She's going to take driver's ed this fall. Her life is beginning to take root on the seacoast. Uh, right now is good. Good life I have. So I'm happy. 
very very busy Paulina right oh yeah busy <laughs> busy that's why I'm not crying <laughs> I'm so busy <laughs> yeah busy with her life and soon reunited with her whole family Paulina and Nina recently found out that Victor their dad husband was granted permission to leave Ukraine He's got some paperwork left to do, and then he's going to come join them in Hampton Falls. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report explores the future of the national movement to require companies to include a salary range in all job postings. And coming up at noon today is Here and Now, and Deepa Fernandez is on the line to tell us what's on the show. Hi, Deepa. Hi, Rupa. It's good to be with you and the listeners. And we have a lot on today's show. We're going to go to Haiti, where gang violence and and gangs really are at unprecedented levels and forcing the population into situations that mean they have to flee. We'll get the latest from Haiti. We're also going to talk to an older LGBT activist As you may know, Rupa, there are a slew of anti-LGBTQ bills right now in state legislatures across the country. That, too, is at an unprecedented level. We get some wisdom from a trans activist who has been around through a lot. Um, So if, if that's getting you down, you may want to tune in for some of that. And we're going to have some joy on the show with the hosts of NPR's Alt Latino, who are bringing us some real... Really funky songs for spring. Joy sounds great. Thank you, Deepa. Thanks, Rupa. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes. Over 100 years of experience providing comprehensive estate settlement services for individuals. WelchForbes.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, Governor Maura Healey joins us for our monthly check-in. Lots going on from her search for new leadership at the MBTA to investments she wants to make in early education and clean energy. Plus, she's got a new hire focused on making sure the state gets federal money when it flies. Maura Healey is on Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Sunny in mid-50s today, cloudy and low 40s tonight. Rain possible overnight and tomorrow morning. Right now it's 45 degrees in Boston at 8.52. We're leading with information on how much to ask for when negotiating a new job. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. Eight states have now passed laws requiring companies to include a salary range in all job postings. More than a quarter of all U.S. workers live somewhere with a pay transparency law, according to a new analysis from the National Women's Law Center. And 16 more states, plus D.C., are working on these. Marketplace's Samantha Fields has more. Right after New York City's pay transparency law went into effect last fall, social media blew up with examples of absurd salary ranges some companies were posting. One at Citigroup was zero to two million dollars. The company later said it was a glitch. But a bunch of companies posted huge ranges that really didn't tell applicants much of anything. And I think they saw how bad of an idea that was because there was a lot of public backlash. Andrea Johnson at the National Women's Law Center says that really hasn't been the norm. 
The majority of employers are posting real ranges that truly reflect what they're willing to pay, the minimum and the maximum. It's too soon to tell if pay transparency laws in the U.S. are doing one of the main things they're intended to do, reducing gender and racial wage gaps. But we do know from other countries that have similar laws that there has been a, a noticeable effect. Emiliano Hewitt Vaughn at Pomona College says that's likely to happen here, too. The challenges are in implementation enforcement. You know, in the U.S., there hasn't been always great compliance. And so far, he says, few states seem to be actively enforcing their pay transparency laws. I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace. When I was a teenager working at a local radio station in Maine, banks were big advertisers, the Waterville Savings Bank and more, and every single one of the 30 and 60 second commercial spots I would narrate ended with the following six syllables, member FDIC. Now back then, just four letters, something to do with not repeating the Great Depression. Well, here in March of 2023, federal deposit insurance has become all too relevant after the failure of two banks. Up to a quarter million dollars is what's guaranteed. But Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said yesterday there could be no limit for customers of smaller banks in a crunch. And there are other ways people and businesses can insure everything at the bank. Joining me here in New York is Marketplace's senior economics contributor, Chris Farrell. Good to see you. It's great to see you. I think by now, most people listening know that they're insured up to $250,000 at the bank of their choice if things were to go south at the bank, right? Right. So that's the FDIC insured bank. Or if it's a credit union, they have their comparable fund. Again, $250,000. All right. So that's the limit. However, you could have two different types of accounts at the same bank. Not two same checking accounts for you as an individual, but different categories. What does that mean? So you open up a joint account. Like with your spouse. With your spouse, you open up. And you open this joint account and you put $500,000 into this joint account. It is completely insured because each of you is insured the $250,000. Plus, you each have your own checking and saving account adding up to $250,000. So you are insured at the same bank up to a million dollars. I see. And if you had an individual retirement account at a bank, that would be insured. There are certain things I don't fully understand, like trust accounts. But you have to look up these different categories if you're looking for more than 250000 at the same bank. Right. And if you have more than $250,000 at the same bank, I would actually talk to your banker and make sure you understand the rules correctly. But there is another way to do this, which is, hey, bank A, I got $250,000, i am insured. Bank B, I got $250,000, i am insured. Bank C, I got another $250,000, completely insured. You can just open up different accounts at different banks. <laughs> it's actually been done. You remember that story? I think Bloomberg News reported on it a while back. Giannis Antetokounmpo. He's you know, ah, Milwaukee Bucks, right? Great basketball player. Man knows his way around basketball. He also s seems to know how to find deposit insurance in this country. Well, the owner of Milwaukee Bucks tells the story that he had 50 different accounts at 50 different banks, each at the $250,000 insured limit. His money was safe. All right. And just in case people have lost the thread, I think we all realize here that not a lot of people listening right now have more than 250K and therefore shouldn't worry about this. Don't worry about it. And by the way, you can go onto the website of the FDIC. It actually has a really good estimator for you. Always good to talk to Marketplace's senior economics contributor, Chris Farrell. Thank you. Thanks. And the Marketplace team here has more handy guides to FDIC insurance at our digital address, marketplace.org.
About five hours from now, we'll get the bulletin about whether the Federal Reserve has opted to raise interest rates again amid the new uncertainties of the banking mess. We're expecting a small increase, one quarter of a percentage point perhaps. The 10-year interest rate now up at 3.63%. S&P futures are down a smidge. Dow futures are unchanged. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by JLL, a leasing, management, investment, and technology company dedicated to creating a brighter future for the world of commercial real estate. JLL.com. See a brighter way. Google is rolling out its own version of an artificial intelligence-powered chatbot. This one's called BARD, not to be confused with ChatGPT via Microsoft Bing. Now, with BARD, it's like a new restaurant. There's a wait list to get in. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more. Google is playing catch-up after Microsoft's early lead in AI threatened the dominant search engine and the ad revenues that come with that dominance. And Google does have some catching up to do. In early February, when the company unveiled Bard, the AI flubbed its entrance, including a factual error in response to a query. AI engineers call these errors hallucinations when a chatbot makes up answers. Bard's hallucinations sent Alphabet stock plummeting, wiping out $100 billion in value. ChatGPT has had problems as well, such as a conversation with a New York Times columnist in which the chatbot declared its love and tried to convince him to leave his wife. Google is taking a cautious approach to Bard. It's limiting the amount of interaction and providing a good old-fashioned search box next to the chatbot to double-check its answers. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. Now, Elon Musk has his rockets, Jeff Bezos. So does another high-profile entrepreneur, Richard Branson. But Virgin Orbit staff has been on hiatus as the company tries to avoid bankruptcy after some launch system failures. Reuters is now reporting that company is close to a $200 million cash infusion, and some staff members are being reactivated. Stock right now is up 78%. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio with the Marketplace Morning Report. APM, American Public Media. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series. Chinica Orchestra performs Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, Stuart Goodyear, and Florence Price, March 22nd at Jordan Hall. CelebritySeries.org. The Sweet 16 matchups are set, and for those of you who are cynical about college hoops, here's a different perspective. Cohesiveness, continuity, unselfishness, toughness, the ability to overcome adversity, those are some of the things that I've observed in this great tournament so far. How coaching and school culture can be the magic formula behind Cinderella teams on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.